This episode of Talk Sinophilia to Me was brought to Sinophilia. This episode of Talk Sinophilia to Me was brought to you by Selectively Colored Coal. Selectively Colored Coal will always protect you during the winter seasons, during the coldest times of the year. So remember, always get Selectively Colored Coal that may or may not be blue. Oh wait, that's the shadow, and I am Orson Wells. Well, hello there, Orson. Who are you? I'm Julie Kearns. Get out of my apartment! That's rude. I don't want to stay anywhere where I'm not wanted. I think I'll just walk out through the kitchen. But as this is radio, you can't... Well, it's not radio, it's a podcast. But as it's It's almost podcast, like radio. It's almost like radio. You can't see me, so we're going to have blind. to make noises. We're all blind in this world. Make the noises. I'm tromping through the kitchen. I'm going out, and now I'm going to open the door to the outside and... Oh, my God! There's a walking toilet scrubber, and it's going to kill all of us! Oh, What's happening in here? There's a toilet scrubber, and it's going to wipe out all of humanity. It will scrub out all of civilization. Oh, that sounds just like 1930s radio talking about fascism in a you very You ran over my joke! Way. <laughs> oh, no! My joke has been turned inside out, and they're now Nazis! And they're not in the YouTube comments anymore! They're coming over from space-time continuum nonsense! Okay, All right, I think we got that opening down. Okay, okay. okay so... <laughs> Let's continue on here. You're getting a little bit of a taste of what this episode is going to be about. Now, it may be strange that in this podcast, we will sometimes talk in depth about films you're likely not going to want to watch. Or if you choose to watch them, it's not going to be for cinematic value. Now, people do like hearing about movies that they won't like. I mean, there's a whole thing about angry reviewers and people are crazy about that guy's stuff. Oh, okay. That's not where I was going with this. <laughs> I was going to say that people may want to watch a film for its influence, which also fits in with my wanting to use this podcast to talk about films that I have even sometimes initially rejected, but have later returned to and come to appreciate, though they aren't great cinema. By this, I don't mean movies that are so bad that they're great. I might later find value in films that I didn't previously because I have changed. Just as I might not like a film, then later like it, I might like a film, then hate it, and then like it again, and I have to examine why. I might later come to appreciate a film because I have learned something about its impact on other work, or because it takes on special meaning when viewed in relationship to the whole body of work of its director. That means appreciating a film not as an isolated work, but as a part of a process. Of course, not all films can be examined in this way, just as not all art can be examined in this way. But many people, I think, believe that if they don't like a film, then that's all there is to it, the film isn't good, when that may not be the case. Oh, you look surprised about this. Whoa! Oh, yes. Oh, no! Yeah, sometimes, guess what? Something may be good and you don't like it, or it may be not very good at all, but it might still be kind of good, even though it's not very good. It's a lot like chicken hearts. It's a lot like chicken hearts? Well, I don't know. Have you ever eaten a chicken heart? 
people eat that stuff? Yes, they eat that stuff. You Ew! Yes, you don't know that because we've never done that. Very unexpectedly, most of the work we're going to look at in this episode is by someone little known today who is... Orson Welles. I mean, Arch Obler. Arch Obler. This is unexpected as it hadn't occurred to me to explore his work, which is also nice. I like being surprised, even if I'm the one who's surprising myself. I was previously familiar with him through his post-apocalyptic nuclear war film, Five, but as I began examining his oeuvre, what caught Aaron's attention was his film, The Twonky. Now, it caught your attention, not mine. That's true. It caught my attention, and I called you over and I said you were going to love this. The Twonky is about a television that functions as a regulating agent of the superstate. It is a time-traveling fascist machine that disguises itself as a TV set. It, it is like, um, so it's like Videodrome if it was conceived by Andy Griffith. It controls people's minds. Now, as we're talking about television, one might think of Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message. But then one learns that the movie, which has more of the production values that we now associate with early television, and which is about television, was originally a radio drama. Radio, radio. And the evil controlling <laughs> yeah, agent. Yeah, the, the one Elvis Costello <laughs> reference that we're just going to throw into here. But... And the evil controlling agent was... Radio, radio. The radio. In fact, Obler began in radio and was very popular for his radio plays and his radio shows that anticipated the Twilight Zone. When one reads only the descriptions of them, they sound more like straight-out absurdism. And in that bizarre absurdism, one finds politics, such as in... The Chicken Heart and the Dark. And the dark. The and the dark. Uh-huh. The chicken heart is the one that got me. That is just so crazy. You read it, and it's like, it, it's, it's very different from what it comes off in as radio. In radio, you get the fantastic element, but when you just read the description of chicken heart, it's like it could be Ionesco. Well, it was, it was made the subject of a stand-up comedy uh, routine by America's favorite uh-oh. Oh, let's go. Okay. <laughs> Uh-huh. America's favorite. Uh oh, we're right. not even gonna name them here. <laughs> okay. Well, which one do you want to do first? Do you want to talk about Chicken Heart, or do you want to? Yes, talk let's about... talk about the. So there's the elephant in the room, and then there's the rapidly growing Chicken Heart in the room. So Chicken Heart is what it says on the petri dish. It is this sci-fi melodrama horror story about a Chicken Heart that rapidly grows, and it it's. Not quite sure if it, it eats everything or destroys everything or just sort of... It takes over the world. It covers it. Like you say... It's like, like the blob. It's uh, like the blob, but for idiots. That's why I said in the one thing where um, last week, you know, I was doing like the, the weird sounds. Mm -hmm. I was trying to impersonate a chicken heart. Until you finally have, you've got these guys flying in the airplane up above the earth. Helicopter. And the, and the chicken heart... Oh, helicopter. And the and the blob the the blob the it's blob, not the blob, the but it's the chicken heart that has taken over the world and they've run out of gas and so what else can they do? They give this existentialist monologue about chicken hearts. The guy, you know, the scientist is like I wondered how the world would end. It ends as a joke, as a chicken heart and then the airplane goes Beer! And they crash and that's it it goes that's sploosh, right into the chicken gut it is 
shocking. <laughs> well, not really. It's actually, like I said, it's a surprise to read. It's like, oh my goodness, what? wow. And the best part of it is, the version that you can find right now, that's the abridged version because the original Arch Obler radio dramas are vaulted because apparently Obler himself didn't like how certain uh, char- racial characters were depicted. And so he had the original versions. Of racial his- characters? Yeah. Uh, uh, he didn't like... Um, Looking back on it, he kind of regretted like how certain minorities were depicted or okay, something like that. Right. All and right. so he had the original copies of his Lights Out thing vaulted and re-recorded into more abridged versions with the problematic stuff taken out. Jeez, I'm wondering how in the world Chicken Heart would have ended up being racist. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, when, when we get to the Twonky, the film version... He backpedals oh. on some stuff there. <laughs> okay, we don't... Yeah, that's, but... Um, let's, so we have the chicken heart. But I'm which not is, even sure he would have thought of that. I don't know if he would have thought of that as being racist. But um, so we got chicken heart. Okay, let's backpedal a little bit. Okay, okay but so, wipe that out. No, bye. no. Bye, so bye. that was the chicken heart. Now, the dark is the more kind of tales of the crypt-ish thing of the two because it has more of a kind of traditional horror thing to it. Um, cop and a doctor go to this spooky, isolated house with this crazy cackling witch woman inside of it oh she's not a witch woman they go she inside she cackles and they, like the wicked witch oh, she's of a, not a witch woman she's a woman who's gone insane and they don't know why she's gone insane and then they find out because they find a person who's been turned inside out there is the dark and the dark tears everyone inside out in this little house and you hear it in very graphic detail and they elaborate on like crazy because of course, being a radio program, everyone is blind, and so they have to announce everything. Be glad that people in radio programs never have problems in the bathroom. Moving on from that. <laughs> One thing about these radio programs is they're very sound design heavy for obvious reasons. And so, even if stuff as traditionally corny as The Dark with its many sort of thematic cliches it does get fairly gruesome and kind of uncomfortable at some points when you hear the cop and the uh doctor essentially have a mental breakdown when they're watching the woman be torn apart from the inside out and so it does have in a way it still does have some of that shock factor that it did initially back in the 30s and 40s well for you it did i was not shocked at all i was okay not shocked but the disturbingness of it, the kind of eerie... Well, people back then certainly did find it disturbing. Last week, we discussed Richard Matheson's The Last Man on Earth. Based on I Am Legend. Which was highly influential as a post-apocalyptic, Cold War-style pandemic film. George Romero's Night of the Living Dead inspired by it. We were talking about Cold War worries of not just the bomb, but by virtue of how the bomb works the invisible threat of radiation. If you've never read John Hersey's Pulitzer Prize-winning 1946 book, Hiroshima, what is profoundly impressed upon one was how not just horrifying but mystifying was this new art of warfare. Before, when a bomb dropped, if you lived, you lived. With Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people who believed they were survivors thereafter became ill and died and no one knew why they literally did not know what had hit them 
warfare had become an invisible, carried on the air like disease. Our focus was on how this invisible threat came to be expressed through vampires and zombies. And we briefly touched on Obler's film Five, which is credited with being the first post-apocalyptic film in which survivors of a nuclear war, one waged with arms that kill people rather than destroying buildings, confront a world in which all the effects of civilization remain, but its builders and inhabitants have almost all died. And boy, did we trash it back then. No, we didn't. Did we yeah, trash we, it? Yeah, we kind of did, yeah. You said that it was so bad, the only memorable thing about it was the house. Oh, you said I that. did that. Yeah, you did. Okay, but I went back and I watched it again, didn't I? And yeah, we will talk that, about that. That that's, quote hasn't aged well now. That Well, no, that's why I led in with talking about how um, sometimes we will talk about films where my mind changes. Yep, yep. For some reason, my mind changes. And we will talk about why someone's mind might change. Let's go. Obler's Five doesn't have zombies, but the Twonky, which is humorous, does. We'll talk about both Five and Twonky, but first I want to explore a little more the introduction of the idea of the zombie to film. There are two threads to this podcast. One is that of Obler's work, and the other is the zombie, and some films in which the zombie has been used to represent fascism and white supremacy. The zombies initially popularized in cinema were Hollywood interpretations of Haitian voodooism, the first zombie movie being White Zombie from 1932, directed by Victor Halperin, starring Bela Lugosi as Murder Lujan. Now that's uh, a friendly name. Yes, Murder is a friendly name. <laughs> a white Haitian evil voodoo master. The role was a year after he played Dracula, and I read that much of it was shot on film sets left over from Dracula and Frankenstein. Though the film's highlight attraction ostensibly is Haitian voodooism, even a glancing examination of the film shows that's not the case. It's hard not to see in the casting of Bela Lugosi a Svengali, or a nod to stories of Rasputin, who was involved with the family of the last monarch of Russia, Nicholas II. Rasputin, a mystic, practiced mesmerism. Svengali, a character in the 1895 novel Trilby by George de Murier, transforms a woman into a great singer by use of hypnosis. Artists of the period wrote of how they mesmerized their models so that they would be able to pose for lengthy amounts of time, and some described how it was harmful to the psyches of their models. It was believed by hypnosis one could control a person, thus the leap to voodoo. One also can't help but notice, too, how these popular legends of zombies and vampires are considered exotic and alien evils that involve the deprivation of independent thought, the taking control of one's mind. If we look at Lugosi's roles, we find that in the 1920 German film Slave of a Foreign Will, he played an evil hypnotist. The vampire from Transylvania had the same magnetic power. He lands on American soil as Lugosi's Dracula. Within a year, morphs into a Haitian voodoo master who aids a plantation owner in taking possession of a woman through seeming death, then resurrection into a zombie. 
So one thing to add is that there is some debate about what is technically the first true zombie film. Okay. Ring the bell. Ding, ding. So on one end of a ring, you have from the 1930s, the sound sporting heavyweight, White Zombie, featuring America's favorite impersonator of Count Von Count from Sesame Street, Bell Lugosi, which... Arguably is probably one of the first uses of the word zombie in that particular context in film. And on the other end of the ring, you have, with its warped, impractical architecture and various soundtracks provided by various different silent movie companies, you have the cabinet of Dr. Caligari from the German Expressionist Movement. So What year? 1920. Okay. 1920, exactly. It actually had its 100th year anniversary not too long ago. It's interesting that it came out the same year as the film I've just mentioned, Slave of a Foreign Will. So, in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you have Dr. Caligari, and he has a cabinet. So it lives up to the title, but, um, so you have Dr. Caligari, and he has this somnambulist, or, you know, as most people call it nowadays, a sleepwalker, named Cesare. He keeps control of Cesare through hypnotism, and... While he has Cesare as a carnival act during the day, at night he sends Cesare out to kill people. So the main thing about Caligari that sort of splits it from these other films is that it has a very specific anti-authoritarian angle. The guys who wrote the film were distinctly um, pacifists, and they wrote the film after feeling disillusioned with Germany from the handling of World War One. Now... My sort of verdict on whether or not it's a zombie film sort of goes back and forth because it's that a film... That sounds like a zombie film. I think it almost isn't exactly, though, for a handful of reasons, mainly in the sort of subject matter. And so whether or not it is a zombie film, I personally sort of go back and forth on it sometimes. I think not really. Other times I think sort of, yeah, but uh, it's a thing that... I've had a bit of a tough time deciding because it's a film that I've been actively looking into for years at this point. And so, throughout all that time, I've picked up perspectives of a film in various different ways in that time. Do you want to talk about this at length in another episode? Maybe. So, let's talk about that in another episode. How about that? Because we've got a lot of material to wade through here. Yeah. Okay, returning to White Zombie. What a name, White Zombie. No, I like Grey Zombie better. Okay, it's actually, it's a, it's a really creepy name, isn't it? White Zombie. White Zombie. Yeah. Let me talk a little about the plot. Charles Beaumont is a plantation owner who has fallen in love with Madeline, the fiancé of a banker named Neil. Only a few of the zombies controlled by Lugosi are shown as black Haitians. Instead, the first zombies to whom we're introduced and who are focused upon in the film are white men, some dressed in monks' robes and wearing crosses that might make one think of a mystic such as Rasputin. He controls former enemies, including politicians and an executioner. As Lugosi says... They work faithfully and for long hours. That was a horrible Lugosi imitation, wasn't it? Can you say, can you do a Lugosi imitation? They work faithfully and for long hours. One, two, three, four. Ha, 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 ha. Okay. Four zombies. 
So Lugosi says they work faithfully and for long hours when he first proposes to the plantation owner that he could use such men. But what Beaumont wants is Madeline. So by means of a drug supplied by murder, he makes her appear to have died. She is placed in a crypt, then removed and resurrected as one of the living dead. Almost immediately, the plantation owner realizes he prefers a real girl, but then it's too late. White Zombie is a great-looking film, by the way. There's a nice, effective scene in which Neil, drinking himself into oblivion after Madeline has died, is surrounded by the shadows of dancers at a bar. That's one of the main club. shots I really specifically remember of a film from a visual it's standpoint. It's a great, great scene. You got that, and you got the factory. The acting is a few short years away from silence, and enough of the plot is conveyed visually and through just enough of a remnant of silent film physical exaggeration that the sound is almost superfluous. You can especially see it with uh, Madeline. Her eyes look like they're about to grow out of her head. Oh, she they has the biggest huge. eyes I've ever seen. They are They are huge. gigantic. That is like total... 1920s flapper type of stuff like oh my god those eyes are going to consume the earth like the chicken heart like they really are now the film is certainly racist neil when he finds madeline's tomb empty for he returns to it and he's told by a preacher who has been a, a missionary who's been on the island for a while that she's been turned into a zombie and when he's told this he replies you don't think she's alive in the hands of natives better dead than that. Mm. Oh, I don't remember that. Yes, that's pretty bad. I didn't remember that. Mm -hmm. And also, you've got some strange subtext here as far as whether or not Lugosi or murder, what is his real motivation for doing what he does? It may be suggested that murder is homosexual. When toward the end of the film, he tells Beaumont he's taken a fancy to him after surreptitiously giving the drug to him that will turn him into a zombie as well. Beaumont had pled with murder to return Madeline to normal, which murder refused to do, saying he had other plans for her. When he says that, at first we imagine he wants Madeline, but then we realize instead when murder gives Beaumont the drug and says he fancies him, that it's Beaumont he wants. We are returned to when Beaumont had visited Murder towards the beginning of the film to ask his aid in winning Madeline's heart. Murder had said the price would be heavy and Beaumont had said he would give him anything. The camera then slowly panned up the body of Murder's executioner zombie. Then he whispered what the cost would be in Beaumont's ear. Beaumont flinched back, exclaiming, No, no not anything that. but that! But we have no idea what that was. Murder then gives him the drug, telling him a pinpoint in a glass of wine or a flower is all that's needed. And that is how he reveals to him later that he has drugged him when he gives him a glass of wine. Beaumont looks at him, and he reminds him, A pinpoint is all that's needed. I don't know whether it's too extraneous to talk about, but Chauvin is the executioner's name, the executioner zombie. Chauvin is the name from which we have chauvinist. 
nationalism, like jingoism. Nicholas Chavon was a fanatical Bonapartist, despite the unpopularity of his views, thus the connection of his name with nationalism. Wikipedia states that many writers and historians falsely attribute to Chavon the exploits of other Bonapartists. It's claimed that he served in the Old Guard, and when the Old Guard made its last stand, in response to a call for their surrender, he said, the Old Guard dies but does not surrender. That phrase is also attributed to the Old Guard's commander, Pierre Cambron, but other sources say he simply stated, merde. And that is why I bring this up, because of the name murder. Where did the name murder come from? Does it actually come from Merd? I don't know. I mean, mm -hmm. America's interest in zombies had been kicked off by the 1929 book, The Magic Island, by William Seabrook. He was a very creepy adventurer and a friend of the infamous Aleister Crowley. Early in his career, he was a reporter and city editor of the Augusta Chronicle in Augusta, Georgia. His first wife was Katie Edmondson, whose father was a Coca-Cola executive. Living in Atlanta, he was first a music critic for the Atlanta Journal. Then after marrying, he founded an advertising agency and acquired some wealth. Then he got a job as a reporter for William Randolph Hearst and began his travels. He went to North Africa and that produced a book on Bedouins, dervishes, and devil worshipers. Later, he went to Haiti, and that produced the Magic Island. A big problem with Seabrook was that Americans loved his book on Haiti. It got great reviews, but anthropologists said he misrepresented Haiti, that he took everything out of context, and he made Haitians seem like children. His second wife was author Marjorie Worthington who he met in Paris, where they socialized with such luminaries as Sinclair Lewis, Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas, and Thomas Mann. On his books on Haiti and Arabia, she had to say that although they may not have been literal truths, they were better than that. He was a sadist who resented his father having become a minister, but hated his mother even more than his father for her being an embittered minister's wife. He was obsessed with cannibalism. Marjorie recounted how he had acquired... Oh, I thought you were going to do a checklist there, like cannibalism? <laughs> Boat he... rides? Long walks <laughs> on the beach? <laughs> All the good stuff. Oh, yeah, really. <laughs> no, he was, he was, no, he, I don't know, maybe he liked walks on the beach, for all I know. What about boat riding? Maybe so, but he, he was very obsessed with cannibalism. Marjorie tells a story about how he acquired some flesh from a worker who had been killed in a traffic accident. He gave it to a cook, telling him it was wild goat. <laughs> the cook prepared a meal for him, and he ate that meal before unwitting friends. Marjorie was so repulsed that she left the room and was ill. The good old-fashioned switch up a goat meat with human trick. Seabrook perversely <laughs> enjoyed his little trick. So did it taste like chicken? I I don't know. He, I forget what he, he described it in one of his books, but I don't remember if he might have said that it tasted like veal. Seabrook was an alcoholic and he committed suicide at the age of 61. 
So the zombies of White Zombie. Yeah, and- we're not really going to talk about that. It's just sort of like, yeah, too much of a creep to really sympathize with. Marjorie loved him. She continued to love him she even after they him. divorced. Yeah, she continued to love him. She wrote, she wrote in her book she thought he was a great guy. We'll go back to the very wholesome Arch Obler. I tried watching Obler's 1945 film, Strange Holiday, which peculiarly enough was done for General Motors and intended to be shown its employees as a wartime morale boost. Now, did you research that about General Motors? No, I I actually didn't. I, I forgot to because I was watching the films in the meantime, but I remember hearing that there was a specific tie between General Mo- General Motors, Ford possibly, and the Nazi Party, where oh. there is like a sort of connection. I think it may have been like the German branch of General Motors or something like that, but where they did have very certain ties with the fascist party. I think we may have to look into that afterward just to know if we should even keep this in. <laughs> but if it's right, then we kept it in and we aren't... Well, I know that they did. Okay. They, but they, they, uh, they did, and still... Um, now it's during wartime, late, and they're trying for a morale boost. They're going to have their employees shown a movie that makes them all for America. Yes, and, be against the thing that we're supplying stuff for. Or did supply stuff for. <laughs> we did supply stuff so for. for. I don't know when they stopped supplying stuff. 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 The m- movie was supposed to be a short, it grew into a feature film, and it seems that General Motors was unimpressed by its heavy-handedness. Claude Rains stars in it as John Stevenson, a man who goes on a camping vacation and returns to a world he doesn't understand because the America he knows has been replaced with a fascist government. The prevailing tone of the people is a kind of zombieism, but nobody will tell him what has happened. No one will tell John Stevenson why everything is so strange. He's thrown into jail with a black man who recognizes him as they once worked for the same company. Stevenson asks him who he is, and he says, I am the Muffin Man. Okay, no, no, no. (laughs) No, no, because this is important. He says he's nobody. Stevenson keeps saying it's all a mistake what has happened, how he's being treated, for he is, after all, somebody. That's the implication here. Stevenson is somebody. He's done nothing wrong. He has nothing to be ashamed of. He says they can't come into his house without a warrant. The black man has said he's nobody. It's up to the black man to tell Stevenson what has happened. He's the only one who'll do it. He's the one that tells him that the part of the Constitution having to do with rights was thrown out, and there wasn't much that could be done about this. Throughout the film, Reigns has flashbacks to saccharine times before the takeover. These saccharine times would not have existed for his black companion in the jail cell, and we never even find out why his black companion is in the jail cell. This is a movie about fascism, and it's taking over America, and it's really heavy-handed, but at the same time you have in it Despite the saccharine flashback to former times, the black character, for whom it wouldn't have been like that. It wouldn't have been a great America for him. You want me to recite like a couple of public enemy lines in response to that? And Obler gets so heavy-handed with it all that one sees how fascist tyranny and the fascist zombie would later be lifted and applied to communism. 
both concerning a loss of liberty. But despite Stevenson's call for his democratic freedoms of yore, the African-American in jail with him suggests that Obler was saying something about how the same freedoms hadn't applied to everyone. How was America taken over? Stevenson is told by the fascists that the great plan was to use simple democratic weaknesses against Americans, that they hid behind many faces as they spoke, saying things like, it's dog eat dog, get what you can get. The churches are running the country. The unions are running the country. He's told they waited and eventually out of the mouths of fools came the words they'd been waiting for. There's no true democracy anymore. There can be no real democracy in this government. Smash it down and start all over. Change comes only through revolution. We need one strong party and one strong leader. He says their voices were our voices, and soon there was nothing but confusion. Then came the new order and discipline. No one has rights but those who are the leaders, leaders of the blood. This is their America. Some of this sounds very familiar, very recent. Obler may have been more concerned with fascist threat from within the country than fighting an enemy from across, across the water. Do you have anything to say about all that? Nope. No, nothing? Did you watch that film? No, I didn't. You... I didn't know about it until, we, uh, until I just finished watching Five and all the other movies. Okay, so that's one, thing, one that you didn't watch. No. Robert Surtees was the cinematographer who would go on to do some incredible films, The Graduate, The Last Picture Show, but this wasn't one of his great films, and he was pretty new at this point. The drama there is to the cinematography is all in the jail shots with heavy use of shadow and close-ups. We will have that pop up again later on in Five. By the time the film was released, the war was over, and no one wanted to see a film about loss of liberty and fascism. They were tired, too. They just wanted it over with. It's the trends. You gotta think about marketing. I tried to find out as much about Obler as I could, but repeatedly, all I saw was that he was an eccentric, difficult to work with. People felt him to be a genius storyteller, and others felt that he sometimes torched his career. Eventually, I came across the book Smokin' Rockets, the Romance of Technology in American Film, Radio, and Television, 1945 through 1962. Looks like it really has some good information. It did clarify for me some of the angles Obler used in his films. He was five foot three, and it seems early on he became known for directing individuals while standing on a table or a ladder. He later obviously carried this ladder viewpoint over into film. Now we're going to talk about Five, which you have reminded me was a film that I kind of raked over the coals. Yes. We, yes, when we previously you, discussed You raked it. it over coals quite intensely. You were like, uh, the only memorable thing about it is the house. There's no other reason to watch it. You know, you were like, Ugh. Five. Four. Three. three two. two one. one dead baby oh and uh no we're not <laughs> we're keeping that in it's relevant to the movie <laughs> well five four three two one it begins with nuclear war um very interesting depiction of nuclear war but um the film seems to have free openings attached to it you have the title and then the tagline what happens the day after 
and then the Bible passage, and then the interesting montage where you have smoke going over these images. Some of them are movies, while others are still photos where they didn't exactly um, go to the effort to block out the people in the photos, so you just have these people just standing there while you have screaming in the background, so they're sort of like... You know, in Powerpuff Girls, the original series, how you would just have those people screaming, you know, just sort of standing there while you have a monster running around, just waiting for, like, characters to come and save the day. Right. And it sort of had that same kind of vibe. And then we get to the action part. A woman is stumbling around a small town looking for people and only finding skeletons. Oh, which is boy. one reason <laughs> I didn't like the film on my first outing with it. It's the reason why I loved it. There are a number of things that were intended to shock the audience and which only seemed hokey to me. Eventually, she makes her way to a home in the countryside where a relative had lived. Instead of the relative, she finds Michael, the reason for which an alternative title of the film could be, I went to Dartmouth and all I got was a lousy nuclear holocaust. (laughs) Wait, is that for real? No, that's my that's my alternative title. Oh, that's better, actually. <laughs> Michael is bitter in the way only a guy who majored in English can be bitter when the one job he finds after getting out of school is being a tour guide at the Empire State Building. And a protogenitor for every 80s action movie protagonist ever. Well, you think so. I don't see that. I do. He looks like... He looks like the weird sort of sketchbook equivalent of a guy who acted in The Thing by John Carpenter. I know, but you see that, but I don't. Well, I see things right. Okay. (laughs) I think I see a Shakespearean actor, and I know I'm right there, because he he did act in Shakespeare. I don't see Shakespeare because I don't know what a Shakespeare looks like. Okay. He thinks... That as Roseanne is the last woman and he is the last man, they ought to embark on an intimate relationship. She disagrees. This gives him more to be bitter about or possibly ashamed about. But over the course of the film, he does change, which takes us to the advertising. The advertising has this woman running away from monster like skyscraper size five almost in the background like it's a godzilla film and she's the only woman and there are four men coming around from behind the the different letters five (laughs) all very menacing you know menacing this poor woman who's you know it's a birthday party but it went horribly awry they're going to surprise her but then the surprise went too far down the road eventually come along two of the other five survivors a bank clerk by the name of Mr. Barnstaple. Barnstaple? Barnstaple. I forgot. He talks like he talks like a Monopoly man feels of like one of those characters in Midsummer Murders who gets killed off like partway through like the first episode. He kind of does. He's a nice old guy who's con- who's gone crazy. Yeah. Because of everything that's happened, and he's with another employee of the same bank, an African American who's played by Charles Lampkin. He's the, he's the only, like, really good character of the film, so, of course, he's the one who dies. Because... Oh, you gave it away. Spoilers. Well, Spoilers. Pe- people probably looked up the plot synopsis before they ever listened to the podcast. Well, we were going to tell it all anyway, but yeah. it's not so soon. As far as I can tell, poor Mr. Barnstaple's singular purpose in the film is to get everyone to the beach, which is his last wish that he go to the beach 
where he dies as onto the sands is washed up our fifth survivor, Eric, played by James Anderson. Oh, by the way, I should say, I guess I should say that Roseanne is played by Susan Douglas and Michael is played by William Phipps. Since I'm giving the names of the different actors here. <laughs> Michael survived the nuclear whatever, which only killed people. Mm-hmm. It didn't destroy any buildings. It seemed like it's weird. In this, it apparently evaporates everything except for clothing and buildings. It, it just gets rid of flesh, human yes. flesh. And it doesn't affect you, birds. Of course you don't, yeah doesn't affect birds it doesn't affect any of our animals just humans specifically it's the bone bomb that's what it is the bone bomb (laughs) michael survived the holocaust because he was stuck in an elevator in the empire state building roseanne survived because she was being x-rayed behind lead shielding she turns out to be pregnant barnstaple and charles had been stuck in the bank vault as for eric Eric was climbing Mount Everest when the nuclear whatever happened and was stuck in a blizzard for five days. When he descended to camp, he found everyone dead. And that way he was, you know, deprived the congratulations of made it up Mount Everest. He made his way across Asia and found no survivors. He boated to Hawaii and found no survivors. He then took a plane to America. The plane ran out of gas and went down in the Pacific Ocean, and thus he miraculously washes up on the beach just as Barnstaple dies. If Roseanne and Michael and Charles hadn't been there, then darkly handsome Eric would certainly have drowned. Everybody would have just woken up and been like, oh man, what did I do last night? What, is it the end of the world? What? Well, actually, no, it would have, it would have been like in a thick European accent because... He is the, was it, like, German, Russian, his accent in the film? No, it's not. It's like this weird sort of European accent kind of thing, but he's, he's the Nazi of the group, just so, just to clarify. He is the fascist of the group. He's not explicitly said to be fascist, but he has fascist sensibilities, which is why Obler has made him the mountain climber. He's the... He wants to make himself the top of the world. Yeah, he's the conqueror. He's the imperialist. He wants to be the big man over everything. And even like partway through the film, like they mentioned like how he, just to fulfill his life, tries to conquer everything. Like they, I remember they mentioned that specifically. And they're very sort of radio-ish showman dialogue. That's one thing about the dialogue in the film. There's a lot of exposition. It's a very expository film. Yes, it is. Should we take a break here to discuss the cinematography in the film, or should we continue talking about the plot? I think first we should also acknowledge the sixth survivor, the Frank Lloyd Wright house. Well, as you brought up to me, although the movie is called Five, you you said to me, you were looking at, it occurred to you, it was like, wait a minute. You only have like four people in the film at a time, because... Old man dies, and then the Nazi comes through. And I remember you mentioned also, the old man is sort of like the friendly capitalist. And so there's also a little bit of an unintentional thing also, which is very true about like how behind capitalism you always have fascism. So who will be Adam to Roseanne's Eve? Will it be the Dartmouth English major? Or will it be the fascist? Or will it be the African-American 
I wish it was the African-American because he's the only, like, legitimately really good character. Both in, like, just moral and also just general writing. Well, that's the thing, is it's interesting. Charles mm -hmm. is the most fully fleshed out character. He yeah. is the one that has more of his story told. Mm -hmm. He is three-dimensional. Yeah. Whereas so many of the others aren't. And the woman is just weird. I read some reviews of the film from the time, and they were very positive on her. When I was watching the film, I wasn't crazy about the acting, her acting. And I did not know if it was because of her acting or if it was something where my own perspective, where I wanted her to be another person, a person that she wasn't. And I think it could be that she is supposed to be so... So shell-shocked. So shell-shocked that she is kind of dulled throughout much of the film. And kind of detached. Uh-huh. Uh, dissociated from a lot that's going on. Mm -hmm. She talks a little bit strangely. Although that could also be attributed to just like the kind of weird way all the dialogue is written up because they don't talk in a regular back-and-forth kind of way. The dialogue in the film is very radio, sort of feeder-like, kind of. Mm -hmm. It's very descriptive, very expository. There's never, like, a simple interaction between any of these characters. And we were talking, too, about um, how from transferring over from radio to film... Yes. Obler did not have a strong cinematic vision. He does a lot of close-ups. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll get into that. And it's a very claustrophobic feeling, and I don't think that has to do with the nuclear holocaust, the trying to create a claustrophobic tension. I think he just created claustrophobic shots. Because the thing I found to be interesting about it is, and the dialogue sort of pointed me to this also, when you accommodate for the dialogue and you look at the shots that are being filmed here... It looks and feels like a comic book from the 1930s to the 1940s or even 50s. That's right. And you even pulled out a comic book to show yeah, me exactly Yeah, the Dick Briefer Frankenstein so. one, actually. The yeah. one I just mentioned earlier. Dick Briefer's Frankenstein. You look at that. So it's shot in like the then standard 4 by 3 aspect ratio. And so um, it's a very restricted film. Like people are sort of stuck in certain frames. Like essentially... The shots are either really restricted where the actors can't really move around all that much, or the shots are framed to a certain thing, and then the actors, when they start moving, they break out of that completely. They do. They break so out of it. So you would have, like, these shots where, and like... And some of that is actually very poetic, such mm -hmm. as in the dance sequence when Charles is dancing. Oh, yeah. Uh, Roseanne says she can't dance, and so he dances, and that's a beautiful scene. Mm -hmm. but that's also just another case of, like, him just being a legitimately just great character, you know? Uh -huh. But, um... He's more free. He has a yeah. lot. He express he as far as physical and emotional expression. He is much more free than the others. Yeah, both the visual composition. There are some shots literally where I could easily picture the dialogue being taken out and put in speech bubbles around the frame. Mm -hmm. Yes, you pointed that out to me, and it's it's very strong there. Yeah, and you would also have like the movements are just weird, like and. It's not the aspect ratio, because I've seen other films like Soviet Necrorealist, Yevgeny Yufit, and you have uh, shows in Fukui with 964 Pinocchio and stuff like that. They also film in that same aspect ratio. The motion in those films is completely nuts. 
it's usually kind of impossible to get like a perfect screenshot from most films, but they have great motion to them. 964 Pinocchio especially. So it's just that the, the direction five is very restricted. And it's not even like a feeder sense because I've seen Waiting for Godot and stuff like that. And that's more loose with the motion. Well, even like when he does his establishing shots, which are broader, yeah. they still feel claustrophobic and don't give a lot of information. And they're really shaky too. Like, the camera looks like it's being held on a helicopter blade. And I thought at first that was oh, the no, case. Oh, that, no, that one you're talking about, you're talking about, it is a helicopter. That is No, that also happened with, um, near the ending when uh, Michael runs back into the woman and she is walking to him. The shot just sort of goes like... And I have no clue why, because it's ground level. It's just weird. Well, I have no idea which shot you're talking about, because when you say Michael was walking to the woman and she was walking to him, that could be any number of okay. shots. I, I can't remember which number it was exactly or anything like that, but when you watch the film, you notice it, and it's jarring. It's bizarre. So you've got four characters that are always seen, which is interesting to me, actually, that it's called five, but it only ever shows four people at a time. Mm-hmm. And that you still, you always have a fifth star there. Which is the house. It's the house. He was really proud of his house. It's Obler's Frank Lloyd Wright house. Yes. He loved that house, and well, he should have. And if you're familiar with Frank Lloyd Wright, and you're watching it, and you don't know yet that it's a Frank Lloyd Wright house, all it takes is one glance. You look and you go, oh, that's Frank, That's Lloyd, Frank Wright. Lloyd Wright. And from then on, you're watching The House, yep. which is kind of too bad. By virtue of being a star, it becomes a distraction from everything else. Mm-hmm. Especially when the cinematography is just bizarre at some points. The thing that got me especially is there are several times where they could show the house in all its glory. Like there are a couple of shots like um, earlier on when um, Michael was talking with Roseanne. For most of the scene, it's just like the backs of their heads. Very, once again. He is very fond of showing the backs of people's heads. He's very fond of shots where he's got the back of somebody and they're standing in front of somebody and they're blocking their face. Yeah. Yeah. And so you would have that. And then for a fraction of a second, you have this really good establishing shot. It actually looks like one of the few times that like the cinematographer just got their own shot in mm-hmm. where it's the two looking down from the house. Mm-hmm. And you have like the sort of light dynamic thing where the inside of that house is lighter and almost kind of well, you like... were more fond of that shot than I was. I liked it a lot. They had that up for like a fraction of a second and then they cut back to the shot that was just the backs of your heads. <laughs> it was like, what? <laughs> you could have showed off your house, dude, but really? <laughs> you know? But now we get to it where Eric, the fascist, is purely destructive. He finds, a, he finds another place to live in. And he keeps coming around to visit uh, and stand above everyone on the cliff, looking down on what they're doing. He thinks they're he thinks they're just stupid because they're ma- building a garden. He wants to go live in the city, and they say, uh, "No, can't go to the city because that's where the bombs were dropped and that's where the radiation is." But that's where he wants to go. He finally talks about eugenics. He says that basically it was a genetic fluke that they survived and that Charles was a mistake. He's basically furious at Charles for having survived. Yeah. And he wants to push Charles out. That is really what the film is about. Mm -hmm. It's about race as much as anything else. 
my mind goes back to the African-American prisoner in the cell with Stevenson mm -hmm. in Strange Holiday. Once again, I don't have much comment to make since because I haven't seen that one. You were talking about a movie connected to that Red Nightmare, which when you first brought it up, I misheard okay, it as Redneck uh, I Nightmare. Have not, I have not seen that. That came out of where you take the clear fascism and, and convert and, to communism. Right. Take the tyrannical and superimpose it over, really you could superimpose it over any other. Yeah. Any other. So Eric being the racist jerk that he is, he kills the only legitimately great character in the film and he kidnaps the woman and her recently born child who kind of takes a back seat to the fact that the only like really great character of a film was just killed off. It's so like, yeah, yeah, you have the baby, but oh no, you know, when uh, Charles is killed off. Yeah, the great mourning event of the film is that Charles is killed. because And the baby dies and is just sort of like, uh, yeah, but Charles still, you know. The reason this happens is he takes the woman yeah, yeah. to the town where mm -hmm. she, she's, she's still, she's wondering if her husband's alive. And he, yeah. ta he takes her to the city where she can find out if her husband's alive. She finds out that he's dead, and she wants to go back to join Michael and Charles, who she believes is still alive. She doesn't know that he was killed. He tells her that, no, we're not going back. She walks off. He comes after her. She they have a little struggle, and... She realizes that he has radiation poisoning. In a very comic book type fashion, like, they have a little struggle, and his shirt conveniently opens up to reveal these boils, and he does the funniest scream I've ever heard in my life and he just sort of runs off while going oh! you remember that how it was just yeah. sort of like oh my god you know <laughs> but it kind of makes sense to yeah me. yeah uh-huh it kind of makes sense yeah the, the concept there the delivery is just really funny which is a bit of a recurring theme of Obler's stuff that's the thing about his movies he is really good at the concepts he's just never quite there for delivery five is the better of the two that I saw specifically between five and Matwanki. Five is a better of the two because while it is kind of comic bookish and a little bit odd with some of the dialogue. Well, let's finish up with talking about five and then move on to yeah. talking about Twonky. I was just going to say the concepts in five are really good. And they are. That's the, see, that's the thing is that a lot of cinematography, the skeletons, a lot of that it got in my way the first time. The first time I was watching it, I was expecting to have good cinematic values, and I was put off visually more than anything else. And I'm glad I went back and watched it a second time because now I like it. I like yeah. what he was doing, and I can see where it was influential, and it was profoundly influential, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Like, I, I, I will admit, I kind of, you know, I got a kick from the skeletons, like... I got a kick from him, like, you know, the plot line was really good. Night of the Presentation was going to be a little bit, a little bit wobbly, like the comic stuff. There was one bit, though, where I could definitely feel them weighing it back, which was when um, Roseanne was going through the hospital and where her husband worked trying to find his body, and she eventually found his skeleton. <laughs> if there's, there's no dancing around it, it's a plastic skeleton dressed up in a business suit. That scene would have been way more effective if you just had a body bear, or in light of what happened of Hiroshima and stuff like that. When the bombs were dropped in Hiroshima, some of the people who were still standing out there, their ashes were essentially made into a drop shadow 
of exactly where they were standing. So across the city after a bomb was dropped, yes, you would just have... Yes, but that was a bomb that destroyed buildings and everything. Yeah, you could have like a drop shadow in favor of dramatic favor instead of a little bony boy just sitting there to sort you know well, I, mean? I think you're wrong really yes of course i think you're absolutely wrong because this was a bomb that dissolved killed people it mm-hmm. killed people but it left everything else yeah it was like disease it, it, yeah. was, a, it was a forerunner to matheson's plague mm-hmm. okay where people died but the buildings the streets everything was still intact once again it was the kind of um vampire mm-hmm. i will say legend since um, it was readily like sort of established throughout the film that this thing was almost like kind of flesh eating, I will admit, as much of a dark joke as it is, I'm kind of disappointed that um, uh, at the end when the baby had like the radiation sickness, it didn't just turn to like a little skeleton wrapped up in like the cloths. <laughs> just for how much of a goofy image that would be, kind of. Ah. Oh. Actually, no, and and it couldn't be flesh. For one thing, I'm sitting here just rolling my eyes. Okay, Once, I'll, I'll twice, just... twice, three times I'm rolling my eyes. Okay. And, and also, it, it was not a matter. Yes, you sit there and you go, why is the flesh removed from all these skeletons? But at the same time, it's not a flesh eating. It was, uh, you know, it's radiation sickness, and then it's almost like, I don't know, in Obler's. That's the problem with Obler. This is finally, okay, I'm going to go ahead and say it. This is one of the problems with Obler, is that he did fantasy. Fantastical stuff. He like did, just... And that he didn't care about logic. A lo- a logic and fact a lot of the time. It's the kind of thing where you could have another writer he was working with come over and say, well, you know, I don't think that would actually happen. And he'd go, uh-uh. No, uh-uh, it's got to be that way. I feel like the skeletons oh, were the compromise. Oh, and that probably happened over and over again, where somebody else that he was working with would come over and say, well, I don't think it would have happened that way, and he would have said, no, 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 it's got to happen that way. That's just the way it is. No matter how fantastically off the wall it was. I feel the skeletons were the compromise. Like, what if, like, in Live of the Dark, it was just sort of like, it's a bomb that makes people turn inside out. Obler, we can't mm-hmm. film that. First of all, that would be impossible to shoot, and the Hayes Code would be on our asses for it. Okay, then the tournament of skeletons, whatever. <laughs> so there's one point in the film where Charles re- recites a beautiful poem, The Creation, by James Weldon Johnson. And Charles had introduced Obler to this poem, a matter of pride where it was an african-american poem it's kind of too bad that it didn't end the film at the very end of the film so everyone has died and the baby has died 1950s reviews weren't too happy about that you've got roseanne joining with michael tilling the ground again oh we forgot to mention how eric went through and before killing Charles, oh yes, and he ran that, over he, all the crops. He, he ran the jeep. Yeah, they had a little jeep, and he ran over all the crops of the he, jeep. He tore up the garden. And he and he said something to the effect of, "If the fools continue to garden, then let them garden," you know, or something like that. I suppose the garden could be a metaphor for Adam and Eve in the garden. He was kind of like, was he the snake tearing up the garden? I guess so. Okay. And what about make Charles? a nice guy i mean charles would be like the guy who just sort of walked up and was, was the, like hey guys how are you doing hope you're having a good day today <laughs> he was the nice guy where 1950s film was not going to permit roseanne to end up with 
African-American Charles. Mm -hmm. That wasn't going to happen. By the time you got around to the world, the flesh, and the devil. With Harry Belafonte. Things had changed. That was a possibility, but not at this point. Mm -hmm. And so they went ahead and they killed off Charles, I think, just because he was a possible and... They couldn't have that. That and it does bring some dramatic tension into the and the, I'm not even sure that the killing of Charles happened. Who killed Charles? Who That's killed the true Charles. question. Yeah. There's one Or it could be that Obler knew that was the right choice because Charles was the character that you didn't want to have die. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing as what happened with Ben in Night of the Living Dead. Oh, that's crushing. The end was just so crushing. Yes. That is probably one of the darkest endings to any film I, I know. know of. There's one thing I have to mention, just to make a complete tonal shift. It's both something that I found to be kind of alarming and kind of funny. So, when they have the baby, they have a real baby for the whole thing. No doll or anything like that. And they even have the baby for the action segments. This poor kid went through hell. <laughs> Just, you know, of all the takes that they had to do. It was especially like during the scenes where Roseanne would struggle with Eric. You would already have like a bits where it's like she's fighting against Eric while he's trying to drag her away. And she has the baby in one hand. It's just sort of like, the baby's already looking all freaked out. And the baby's just sort of like, what's happened to me? I'm, not, I'm barely a year old yet, you know? But one that got me though was, so she's wandering back to the house. And the baby's starting to come down with illness, and the baby just died. I put died in loose air quotes because you can still see the baby's legs kicking around a little bit. She's having her meltdown, and she grabs the baby from the back and pulls it up into the air. And you can see the baby's face for a fraction of a second, and its face is just like, <laughs> Like, you can see its expression. It looks completely shocked. It was kind of hilarious to me, just sort of seeing the face on that baby when it was being pulled up into the air with basically no warning whatsoever because it was just like... <laughs> it's one of those things that's like perfect out-of-context screen cap potential. <laughs> and you knew for certain that kid, when they grew up, they're the one person who would never want to ride a roller coaster ever in their life. When it's said that unlike Orson Welles... Obler didn't cement his name in film. I think this is a very wrong perspective. I think Five wasn't... It may not have been a particularly cinematic. Mm -hmm. Obler did not have Wells' cinematic brain. But his film became a template for dealing with race inequality in following films yeah. like this. I'm not sure he was ahead of his time. But he was the one who was able to get this film made. Yeah. So making a complete tonal shift, we go from a film which is technically a little bit odd. Wait like, a minute. Bye, Five. I appreciate you, Five. Bye-bye. Bye, Five. <laughs> so we move from a film which is technically a little bit quirky of a whole comic kind of thing. Some strange dialogue, but still great concepts, great premise, and, you know, good characters. We move from that to a film which also has a really great concept. I would say it's technically a better movie, but not nearly as entertaining as Five. And that film is humorously titled The Twonky. Well, we talked about The Twonky at the very beginning. But we we're going to go more into depth here. Where we mentioned that it was a television that 
controls yes. its owner. Now, this was uh, originally a radio play, and it was by the writers C.L. Moore, mm-hmm. who was a woman, and Henry Kuntner. I think that's how you pronounce it, K-U-N-T-N-E-R. I would have they no idea. They were a husband and wife writing team. So this was originally a, ra- a radio show. No, wait. C.L. Moore at that point with the radio show, it was Lewis Paget. That was the name that was attached to it. Okay. That was like your pen name? Uh-huh. This was taken from radio, put to television, and it just did not work ultimately. It's a shame because when you first watch the film, the opening credits are a little bit wonky. They feel kind of TV-ish. But when the film starts, you're sort of like, oh my god, this could be just great because... And, yeah. you, and you have Hans Conried... Yes. As as Terry West. The main the, character the main who gets character, the TV. And that he's Snidely Whiplash. He's a yeah. great character actor. He played Snidely Whiplash in and Rocky and Bullwinkle. And he's a great character actor. So he opened with this thing. Really weird, kind of quirky comedy. Like you have this opening section of like this sort of opening narration of Terry West talking about normal life where you have a husband who's about to slap his wife right in the face with a cookie or whatever it was. You have a car crash, which leads to a whole pileup of a bunch of people fighting in the road. And he gets his new TV and his wife gives him this checklist of things to do, which literally goes down to his feet. And he tosses it in a potted plant right next to the front door. So, well, that's one of the interesting things that was not in the initial uh-huh. radio, radio drama. Is that the way that the TV first operates when he finds out to control his life is that it won't permit him to do things that his wife didn't want him to do. Like, when he goes to get another cup of coffee, his wife has told him that he could only have a certain amount of coffee a day, and it zaps the coffee oh, cup Oh, yeah, out of you're hand. right. I didn't even notice that. There's that going on, and I don't quite know what to make about that. That wasn't in the initial radio drama at all. You appreciate, you understand what he's saying, the whole fear of television controlling people's lives, the idea the television won't let him listen to symphonic music oh yeah it, it would put it on plays, american patriotic it, it, music patriotic marches and it won't let him write a paper on individualism so he had to write this philosophy paper to give a well, lecture prof- for yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a teacher so he had to give a lecture and instead the tv sort of it sort of reprogrammed his mind so that he started reciting sections from a book about the history of sex. <laughs> Which... So anyway, one by one, it removes his freedoms and... And it, ma- it makes his interests more primal almost in that way, kind of. People who come into contact with the TV... Yeah, people are... try to destroy it. Every time someone tries to either interfere with the TV or destroy it in some way, it zaps them with its laser and... They enter this sort of zombified state where the only thing they say is, I have no complaints. And they just sort of wander off after that. The main character, Terry West, he goes through quite a few things that this TV just willingly throws him into. Each time the TV pulls him out of it by just zapping these people, it just sort of actively messes with them throughout most of it. Well, ultimately, the TV is defeated. Yeah, that... The thing is, in the radio drama, the TV wasn't defeated. The The radio... uh, that's what I said, the radio drama. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the radio in the 
In the, in right. the radio version. The radio and the radio drama, it ultimately kills the people. This does not happen. We have no dead bodies in the tele, the movie version. See, one says the television version because it feels like it really a television does, movie. Because and I, it was about television. I wasn't joking when I said it felt like video drama is conceived by Andy Griffith because it felt like a singular episode of a TV series stretched out to an hour and nine minutes. And so that was one thing about the watching experience. When you see the first like five minutes or so, or maybe like even nine minutes, you're like, oh, this is going to be hilarious. This is going to be great. Then it's plotting, it's boring, and it's nonsensical. Yeah. It just keeps going. Just, yeah. In ways that just don't work at all. There's basically no character development, which is really weird in comparison to five, because five, all the goofiness aside, it was entirely character development focused. Well, there wasn't any goofiness really to it. There was just the hokey bit about the That's skeletons. what I mean, the hokiness of it. Yeah, uh-huh. Outside the hokiness and odd delivery, it is an entirely character focused film. And even talking about Twonky, I just feel after talking about five, I feel such a collapse of energy talking about Twonky. Twonky is it depressing. Was a, yeah. What well, not depressing. It's it, a bummer. It's a bummer. It wasn't even just a bummer, it was just Oh, you did this after five. Well, yeah, like you don't want it, this to be the last. If you're gonna remember Obler, you want to watch five instead of the Twonky. Yeah, like, like, and it's such a disappointment too because when you hear the premise and when you look at it, or at least like maybe like the very opening of it, you could picture this being like a sort of Corman tier insanity fest. Like this could be like a sort of protogenitor for like the sort of craziness that he would produce with like Little Shop of Horrors and stuff like that if they did it right. The reason I felt like we needed to include Twonky and talk about it was because of the idea of the fascist zombie. Mm -hmm. We once again have the fascist zombie. Hell in a very different way. By 1953, was it about fascism or was it about communism? Yeah, that's one thing because, because you already had the shift from fascism to the Cold War. And that's the thing about the way Obler handles this stuff. It gets sort of propaganda-ish enough to where it could be converted and warped to whatever America was against at that time. So by the time of Twonky, it could be about communism. And if he was still making films now, even if he was intending to make a message about fascism or something like that, it could be warped to like the Iraq War or the Iran War or something like that. Just whatever America wanted to be about at that point. Whatever you were supposed to hate whoever was taking away your freedom, according to America. Well, I don't know about that so much as just the whole idea of control. Yeah. That's, that's, that's different as far as that kind of hate, I think, what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. It's more a matter of the other as the yeah. controlling agent, and once more, the mesmerism, because that's what this machine does. Mm-hmm. It mesmerizes people. Once again, it's the hypnotist mes- mesmerizing people so that they leave and they have no idea what's going on. Yeah. They are totally in a daze. Like Stevenson, mm-hmm. you have the West character, the protagonist, wandering around trying to impress upon others that... What is happening here, which is strange, you know, and, and he's only able to talk to a couple of people ultimately about it. Because mm-hmm. everybody else is zapped by the television. Mm-hmm. Oh, one thing also which I found to be hilarious with, with uh, the Twonky, despite all the themes, when we, when we were watching our copy of the film on YouTube, partway through, all of a sudden, this little logo just popped up in the corner, and we realized... 
this is a TV broadcast of the film. Well, you knew that already. Oh, yeah. You knew that. I, we already talked about how that was like a ninth generation yeah. copy. Well, it could have been like copy. it could have been like a VHS, like just a VHS release of the film. But the fact that it was just broadcast on TV and someone taped it off of TV just made the irony just more fulfilled of like how this film just felt so weird. I'm just very conflicted about it because I love the idea. I love the premise. You love the idea, but the film did not work. The ninth generation VHS copy is not why it didn't work. So, here we are at the end of our second episode, which was on Arch Obler. And something, uh, I think, is something about five and twenty. I feel my energy draining. Well, that's because we covered so much. We covered. Oh, no, it's because there's something about that last movie. It's just so. Uh, do you have any complaints? He, he has no complaints. Okay. After certain unforeseen incidents regarding a obscure movie from the 1950s, I know that a obscure is not exactly the most gra- grammatically correct term, but we're doing this on a wing. The two hosts of the podcast, Talk Cinephilia to Me, have suddenly gone Cinephilia. missing. Cinephilia. And I'm still here. Have, Aaron may be have, missing. Have, they have suddenly gone missing after the watching of a film called Twonky. An investigation is currently being held of their shared family apartment. Because Atlanta be like that. Well, Frank, what'd you find? While we were looking for the apartment and we found this note... It seems to be uh, something related to this podcast thing they're working on. It said that of the two films to watch, five is the worthwhile one to see. While the execution is not nearly as polished as Twonky, the content is better and the experience is an overall better viewing. On a scale of one to five, what would it be? Well, random voice that popped up in my head, <laughs> it would probably be four and a half. The half accommodating for the dead baby. And so now, with that, and what we about must... the Twonky? What would this Twonky scale on one to five? Well, voice in my head, it'll probably be Eternal Pain. So moving on from that. And what would White Zombie be on a scale of one to five? It would be two quirky Bela Lugosi eyebrows out of two. Is that all you're giving White Zombie? Even two though... eyebrows out of two is a good rating. That's an all-around full rating. Two eyebrows out of two. Oh, okay. That's you're right. Yes, I under I get it's it. It's two quirky Bela Lugosi eyebrows. Okay, then. That rating is skeletoned. Is skeletoned. It's skeleton. Yes, that's right. Voice in my head. So now that I've gone into that bizarre rambling about ratings, I must go and find the whereabouts of these two podcast hosts who vanished. Come with me, Frank. All right, Jim. Well, we found this. It's a VHS copy of the film Twonky. Why don't we put it in our TV? Because we don't have a TV on the forest, Jim. Twonky was never plugged in. That's right! Voice in my head. And it's a good thing that I have this television emerging from my stomach. My whole stomach is actually a TV with a VHS player attached to it. My god, Jim! That's horrific! Click, click. TV on chest, cuts on. Jim, this is amazing. You're half a cyborg. Who cares about the movie? You're half robot. Let's just go and talk about... Let's just go and bring you to the scientist. This is amazing. I don't care anymore. We're going to watch the, the movie. And I'm 
I'm trailing off. Hey, Jim, there's another VHS on the floor. What would that be? Well, let's see here. That's the appendix. Yes, it's the appendix <laughs> about about next week's episode. This VHS appears to be a copy of a film, The World's Greatest Sinner. Wow, that's some blatant foreshadowing if I've, if I've ever heard it in my life. And I'm a man of a TV for a chest. Signing out. <laughs> Signing off. This is Julie Kearns and, and Aaron Dylan Kearns. For Talk Synphilia to me. <laughs> <laughs>